0: This war must end, and peace must be established. I hope today's news can be a step towards that goal.
1: For the people of Ukraine, and the Russian Federation, and for the world. Yep, me too.
0: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight That's why I got the feeling something right No, it ain't I'm too scared in case I fall off my chair
1: the middle with you. I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, and yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Welcome to the Bradcast Helping and hoping to make you and me moderately smarter each and every day of the week. At least
0: that's the goal.
1: Wish us luck. Hi, Desi (laughs) Doyen. Hi. Voters in, uh, in six states, Arizona, Ohio, Kansas, Missouri, Michigan, and Washington State, headed to the polls on Tuesday. I'm happy to report, at least so far today, I've yet to learn about many problems for those voters at the polls. In six different states, it seems unlikely that there won't be more, especially since Ohio is voting today. In any event, uh, so far the worst that I've seen is what the Havasu News is describing, of course, as a technological glitch. Oh, another glitch. It's just a glitch. A little snafu. A hiccup, if you will.
0: Not a failure, God forbid.
1: Yeah, this is in Mojave County, Arizona, the northwest corner of the state, where electronic poll books... Yet again, used by officials, quote, to confirm voter registrations, weren't initially working when polls opened at 6 a.m., forcing volunteers to use manual methods. Oh, God forbid they use a paper poll book. (laughs) The horror. To uh, confirm voting status and retrieve ballots for voters. They use hand-marked paper ballots at the polls in Mojave. A a county spokesperson was not initially sure what caused the glitch. But he said it was experienced at polling sites throughout the county. It appeared to be resolved by 11 a.m. So, yeah, five hours after polls opened, they finally fixed this glitch, this snafu, this hiccup. Hopefully no one was turned away in the bargain. Um, Glad they had a manual method, whatever that was, to uh, sign folks in as once again electronic poll books Failed. They don't glitch, they fail. And voters, of course, are forced to pay the price for it. How did democracy ever survive before we had electronic poll books? <laughs> I just don't know. In any event, There are a whole bunch of far-right Trump-endorsed 2020 election deniers on the ballot on Tuesday running for the GOP nominations for some top offices like governor and secretary of state in some key swing states like Michigan and Arizona, where if they are nominated on Tuesday and win in November, they will be able to cause some very real problems for our democracy come 2024. There are also some real peaches running for the GOP nomination for U.S. Senator in states like Missouri and Arizona. Voters in Kansas are voting on a constitutional amendment that would allow Republicans in the state to ban abortions there. In any event, we will have full coverage of all the madness or at least whatever we're able to uh, wrap our brains around from reported results on our next broadcast. But... In the interim, that leaves me with a rare minute or two to hit some foreign policy matters that we haven't had time to focus on for a while with all of the ongoing domestic madness of late. The first ship carrying Ukrainian grain set out on Monday from the port of Odessa under an internationally brokered deal to unblock the embattled country's agricultural exports and ease the growing... Global food crisis, according to AP, the Sierra Leone flagged cargo ship departed with over 26,000 tons of corn destined for Lebanon. Good news. And there hasn't been a lot of good news out of uh, Russia and Ukraine lately. Uh, The uh, both governments signed an agreement in Istanbul with turkey and the u.n on july 22 clearing the way for ukraine to export 22 million tons of grain and other ag products that have been stuck in black sea ports because of russia's invasion of ukraine the deals uh, also allow russia to export grain and fertilizer as part of the agreements safe corridors through the uh, mined waters outside of ukraine's ports were established Ukraine and Russia both major global suppliers of wheat and barley, corn and sunflower oil with the fertile Black Sea region long known as the breadbasket of Europe. The holdup of shipments because of the war has worsened rising food prices around the world and threatened hunger and political instability in several developing nations. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky sounded a cautious note, On Monday, calling the shipment, quote, the first positive signal that there is a chance to stop the spread of a food crisis in the world. He also urged international partners to closely monitor Moscow's compliance with the deal. So good news indeed. In Moscow, Kremlin uh, spokesperson uh, hailed the ship's departure as, quote, very positive, saying it would help test the, quote, efficiency of the mechanisms that were agreed to during the talks in istanbul under the agreements ships going in and out of ukrainian ports will be subject to inspection to make sure that incoming vessels are not carrying weapons and that outgoing ones are bearing only grain and fertilizer or related food items not any other commodities more ships are now expected to leave from ukraine's ports through these safe corridors so long as they remain safe at odessa Sixteen more vessels, all blocked since Russia's invasion on February 24, were waiting their turn. Others will wait to follow, according to Ukrainian authorities. Analysts warn, however, that the continuing fighting could still upend the grain deal. Vladimir Sidenko, an expert with the Kiev-based Razumkov Center think tank, cautioned, quote, the departure of the first vessels does not solve the food crisis it's just the first step that could also be the last if Russia decides to continue attacks in the south, he said. Nonetheless, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who proposed the grain deal way back in April, said the first ship to leave the port, the razoni was, quote, loaded with two commodities in short supply, corn and hope. He added hope for millions of people around the world who depend on the smooth running of Ukraine's ports to feed their families. Hope indeed. At least a little bit. We will take what we can get these days as Russia's war on neighboring sovereign Ukraine slogs now into its sixth brutal month. The resumption of the grain shipments came as fighting continues to rage elsewhere. Nonetheless, in Ukraine, with Russia pressing its offensive in the east, Ukraine trying to retake territory in the Russian-occupied South. Now, if you follow Western media, uh, while it's coming at a brutal cost to Ukraine, the nation's military is making headway in pushing back at overextended and exhausted Russian troops. If you follow Kremlin-controlled media, however... This is a war that can never be won by Ukraine and continues to threaten the risk of expansion into a global conflict, perhaps one that includes the use of nuclear weapons, though Russia takes great pains to note on an alarmingly regular basis that such a development would be disastrous. They seem to say that a lot, as if to remind the world that, yes, They have nuclear weapons and, of course, they would very, very much hate to have to use them. But it's not only Russian controlled media suggesting that this war is unwinnable for Ukraine. A number of foreign policy centered Western media outlets and think tanks have argued similarly in a push for peace talks and a ceasefire in the now war torn nation of Ukraine conversation about that with a longtime expert on the subject matter and how, if it's even possible, to find our way towards an end to this deadly, horrific Russian-Ukraine war. That's next on The broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
0: Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks.
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. It is, of course, difficult to figure out how things are really going in the Russia-Ukraine war, now entering its sixth brutal month with both sides in the conflict seemingly dug in for the long haul and having reason to paint a positive picture of their own efforts while portraying their adversaries as brutal war criminals. Russia is accused as of as much by Ukraine, with good evidence in support of targeting civilians. And for its part, Russia continues to accuse the U.S. and other Western NATO nations, also with persuasive evidence at times, of using Ukraine in order to wage its own proxy war against Russia. Writing over at the National Interest in an article headlined Ukraine Needs Solutions, Not Endless War. Stephen Simon and Jonathan Stevenson write Ukrainian forces. Impressive military performance has reinforced the view that an outright victory against Russia is possible. They write over the weekend, but an unqualified Ukrainian win that dislodges the Russian forces from eastern Ukraine is increasingly improbable. Grinding attrition that makes dangerous escalation a tantalizing option for both countries is more likely, they argue. Accordingly, a ceasefire and separation of forces should be a priority for the U.S. and its allies. The U.S. has the tools and experience to make it happen. At this stage, they continue, there is a rough consensus that the war will likely end through a negotiated settlement. But neither side can fulfill its maximal war aims. Russia cannot conquer all of Ukraine, and Ukraine cannot comprehensively eject Russian forces. Each side also needs minimal assurances. Ukraine needs guarantees that Russia won't keep trying to wipe it from the map, while Russia won't permit NATO to deploy along its border. These are not unreasonable requirements, they write. Ukraine is an internationally recognized sovereign country, notwithstanding the disingenuously false pretexts Russian President Vladimir Putin has offered. It is Ukraine's tilt towards the West that has driven his war, which implicates genuine Russian interests. Both countries will require security guarantees if peace via ceasefire and negotiations is ever to come about. But they note there is also a widespread assumption that because the opposing leaders, especially Putin, are disinclined to negotiate right now, talks will emerge only from the war of attrition now underway when both combatants are exhausted. This view does not offer a stable interim solution to a profound geopolitical feud. Both sides have serious concerns that could lead to a sharp and swift escalation. In the Russo-Ukrainian war, they note neither side seems inclined to talk to the other at this point, but one of the purposes of diplomacy is to probe adversaries' and allies' intentions in a crisis. Arms transfers are key to setting the stage, they argue. The U.S. and NATO should make it clear to Ukraine that if there is a diplomatic opportunity, they expect Kyiv to take it and could turn off the tap if it doesn't. To Russia, the message would be to seize such an opportunity or the Ukrainians will be getting a lot more weaponry. It is well and good for the U.S. and its NATO allies to keep arming Ukraine, the pair conclude. But it is also time to encourage both sides to start exploring possibilities for a political solution before escalation puts diplomacy even farther from reach. And unless the U.S. and NATO condition military assistance on Ukraine's constructive political engagement, they will lack the leverage to work effectively towards a stable objective. That from Jonathan Stevenson a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and uh, a former National Security Council staff in the Obama administration. And it's also from Steve Simon of MIT. He's a senior analyst at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who served in the State Department and National Security Council staff under Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. Over the years, we have turned to the smart foreign policy folks at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft to help us make sense of seemingly intractable foreign policy issues, from the beleaguered on-again, off-again nuclear peace deal in Iran to the current horrific conflict in Ukraine. Joining us now is George Beebe, who has a somewhat scary sounding title at Quincy Institute as their director of Grand Strategy. He previously served for more than two decades in government as an intelligence analyst, diplomat and policy advisor, including as director of the CIA's Russia analysis and as a staff advisor on Russia matters to one Vice President Dick Cheney. George's most recent book is The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Nuclear Catastrophe. It was published in 2019, and it warns how the U.S. and Russia could stumble into a dangerous military confrontation. George Beebe, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Uh, first off, we we have, uh, as I noted, uh, spoken to a number of your colleagues a number of times at uh, at Quincy Institute, including Executive Vice President Trita Parsi on Iran matters, Uh, senior fellow, Anatole Levin, regarding Russia and Ukraine. But this is the first time that you and I have uh, spoken, and never mind the ominous director of grand strategy title, George. For many of our progressive listeners, they may be more spooked, if you'll pardon the pun, by your time at the CIA, and in particular as an advisor to Dick Cheney. Now, I've followed uh, your writing for a while. I see you as a fair and even progressive broker here, as opposed to someone who tows the sort of neocon or or neoliberal line. But before I get your thoughts on this intractable Russia-Ukraine mess, what can you say, if anything, to sort of put our progressive audience about your background, whether with the CIA or Dick Cheney, uh, at at some ease that might put them at ease about that background, particularly on topics like Russia-Ukraine?
2: Well, you know, um, the CIA's fundamental mission is, is really to try to understand the dynamics going on in the world. Um, that's, you know, dynamics inside uh, uh, our, our partner states as well as in our, our rivals, our adversaries. You don't want to be surprised. You, you want to be uh, anticipating what might be coming down the road, mm-hmm. trying to understand uh, the perceptions of other countries um, so that you can deal more effectively with them. You're not taken by surprise, and, and the United States government can effectively promote uh, stability in the world, prosperity for the American people, the safety uh, of everybody involved. Um, and so you know that's the kind of mission, I think, that needs to be conducted in a fair-minded and objective way, um, in a nonpartisan way that's Mm -hmm. not shaped by by political uh, agendas that is as objective as possible Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what I tried to do during my time in government is what I'm trying to do now
1: and what to those who might say well the CIA they're the ones uh, who started all this problem uh, back in 2014 by uh, causing or supporting the Maidan revolution in uh, in 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 Ukraine is is that a fair case to make
2: Well, no, I don't think so. Uh, The CIA uh, is is not supposed to be a policy advocacy organization. Um, It's meant to uh, help our government policymakers understand the situation in the world so that they can make effective decisions. But the, the CIA should not be a policy advocacy group. When you have an organization that is responsible for understanding threats understanding the situation that we're facing in the world that is also advocating a policy it can't be ad- objective in assessing those threats. The idea behind creating the CIA back in 1947 was to take the intelligence analysis function out of the realm of policy ad- advocacy mm-hmm. so you know I don't think the the uh, the agency uh, is out there trying to create uh, policy outcomes in Ukraine or other places in the world is trying to understand them so that our policymakers can make good decisions.
1: So, you would reject the notion that uh, because Russia also puts this forward that, oh, the CIA caused the revolution in 2014, that led to the conflict in the Donbass, the retaking of the Crimea, and so forth. You would reject that argument from Russia?
2: I, I, I do reject that argument. I understand that that's the Russian perception. Mm-hmm. And I think it is uh, reasonable for them to have a perception that the U.S. government, as a matter of policy, was encouraging Mm -hmm. the Maidan revolution and certainly applauding it. Um, But the notion that this was a secret intelligence plot hatched by the CIA, I think is unsupported by the evidence and is a distortion of what reality was then.
1: By way of uh, my own transparency here George I have uh, long been sympathetic to many of Russia's concerns about an ever in en- enlarging NATO encroaching towards Russia's own sovereign borders uh, years of chest thumping frankly toward Putin and and Russia mostly by Democrats in recent years certainly since their encroachments in Ukraine and interference in the 2016 election But to be frank, while I haven't been nearly as much of a Russia hawk as others have been, any benefit of the doubt that I might have given to Russia sort of stopped completely on February 24 this year when they launched an all out invasion of Ukraine and simply lied to the world about it, which I believe they are still doing today. Uh, so with that in, in mind, in my intro to this segment, was I overly kind or, or overly harsh uh, to either of the sides in this Russia-Ukraine mess? Because even though I have my own opinions about it, I do want to be fair and accurate in my coverage and reporting of it.
2: Well, um, this is a very complex issue, mm-hmm. and uh, most foreign policy issues don't have uh, single-factor origin. Mm -hmm. They're usually the result of a confluence of of different forces. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think what's happened uh, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that it's the culmination of uh, a series of developments, missteps on the part of a a lot of different players over time, um, that all contributed to the situation that we're facing today. That doesn't excuse the Russians, and it doesn't excuse Putin for making the choice to invade Ukraine. I think he is fully responsible for that choice, regardless of of what preceded it. Uh, it didn't have to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia certainly has what I regard as understandable security concerns about the possibility of uh, Ukraine allying with. Uh, NATO or the United States and, and posing a, a security threat to Russia as a result. But that doesn't mean that uh, the invasion was justified, that the manner in which this operation has been carried out is, is at all uh, justifiable. Uh, I, I don't think any of that is true. Um, but I also would not say that, you know, Putin simply woke up in february and said hey i'd like to invade ukraine there was a lot that went into shaping uh that decision and i think uh, a lot of blame on both the russian and western side mm-hmm.
1: well and and no matter how it got started the question now is how does it end uh back in april at the quincy institute you wrote a piece headlined, Tell Us How This War in Ukraine Ends. It somewhat echoes the Simon and Stevenson piece from over the weekend, uh, which was headlined, Ukraine Needs solution, Solutions, Not Endless War. Uh, In your piece, you cited the question that was famously asked by uh, General David Petraeus about the war in 2003, uh, describing the Bush administration's overly optimistic assumptions that that war in Iraq and its ultimate consequences uh, of, as you write, plunging the region into decades of instability, which continues to resonate for the U.S., Europe, and the world. Uh, Is that the same the similar concern that you still have now about US and NATO support for Ukraine in this war as we look at the question of how and if this war ever ends yeah
2: that that is very much my concern i don't think we have uh, an exit plan uh, right now we uh, i think quite rightly believe that we need to provide ukraine with the wherewithal to defend itself mm-hmm. To make sure that the Russians can't roll into Kyivs uh, and resubjugate Ukraine, um, and we've done that, I think, very well. Um, but um, that by itself uh, doesn't bring this war to an end, um, and I think we need a plan. I think, as, as Stephen and Jonathan quite rightly pointed out in their article, for bringing this toward a settlement. The alternative is either this escalates into some sort of direct conflict between the United States and Russia, which would have, you know, quite catastrophic implications, Mm -hmm. I believe, Uh, or we wind up with an open wound in Europe for years and years and years to come. And there are all sorts of uh, very damaging uh, knock-on effects from that sort of unresolved ongoing conflict. Uh, that um, obviously hurt Ukrainians first and foremost, but uh, they pose, I think, great dangers to Europe, uh, to the United States, and to the rest of the world in the form of economic uh, depression, mm-hmm. uh, famine, uh, and political uh, instability in much of the global south. Um, and, you know, we, we I believe, uh, need to be thinking about. How does the United States use its leverage, and we have a lot of it in this, to steer this toward a settlement so that we can minimize the prospects of those very real dangers that uh, I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, and I want to talk about that uh, prospect. Uh, but, you know, I've heard from my, uh, a lot of my progressive colleagues and, you know, some listeners, uh, as, as Simon and Stevenson suggest in their piece at National Interest, that Ukraine. Can never actually win this war with Russia, and that the U.S. is sort of irresponsibly and misleadingly suggesting that, in fact, they could, and when the only way out of this is, in fact, a well ceasefire and negotiation. Do, do you agree with that general argument?
2: I do. Um, I don't believe that the Ukrainians can drive Russian forces out of Ukraine altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russians have a significant ability to escalate this uh, up to and including the use of nuclear weapons uh, before they would allow that to occur. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe the Russians have the ability to win this war outright on the battlefield, but I do believe that the Russians have the ability to make sure that if they're going to lose, everyone else will too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they can essentially achieve one of their goals, which is to pre- prevent the Ukrainians from joining the NATO alliance or allying otherwise uh, with the United States military, mm-hmm. um, simply by turning Ukraine into a you know, a wreck uh, economically, politically, and physically that leaves it in no condition to be allying with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think that's the alternative that we're facing uh, if this war doesn't escalate uh, or if this war is not resolved at the diplomatic table.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I tend to agree. But yet, uh, you know, I hear uh, a lot of folks on on the left sort of blaming blaming the u s for where we are now. Okay, we can debate that. But basically saying the only way out is now is ceasefire and negotiation. That may be the only way out. I, I agree. But there seems to be this notion, That, you know, somehow the U.S. should force the Ukraine, uh, force Ukraine somehow, which is, you know, after all, fighting for its life, defending its own sovereign nation uh, at an unspeakable cost, that somehow they should be forced to negotiate and or call a ceasefire when it is their land that they are defending. Shouldn't it be up to Ukraine if and when Ukraine actually wants to negotiate over, well, land that is arguably their own sovereign territory.
2: Well, I think that's certainly correct. Yes, uh, it's up to the Ukrainians whether they want to continue to fight or not. But by the same token, it's, it's up to the United States whether we want to continue to provide them with billions and billions of dollars worth of weaponry in mm-hmm. order to do that, and with the intelligence and military advice that they need in order to fight effectively on the battlefield. Those are our sovereign choices to make as well. Uh, Those decisions about American policy should not be made in Kiev. They should be made here in the United States by Americans, according to what's in our best interest, uh, including what's in the best interest of the American people. So uh, certainly the Ukrainians can decide whether they want to continue to fight this war to the last Ukrainian. That is up to them. But uh, ultimately, the United States needs to make decisions here about what's in our best interest, too.
1: Should, uh, as, as uh, Simon and Stevenson suggest, then, should the U.S. actually place conditions on the continued support of Ukraine, that uh, they should be expected to use diplomacy if and when that opportunity arises, and uh, I guess ultimately say, if you don't, then we will no longer supply you with weapons, and sort of offer that as an ultimatum to Ukraine?
2: Well, uh, a couple of thoughts on this. Uh, First, uh, we are already attaching conditions to our military aid to the Ukrainians. We're making decisions about what weapon systems we believe are safe to provide them. Mm. Uh, And we're trying to strike a balance between what will be effective on the battlefield and allowing Ukraine to defend itself and to stymie Russia's attacks. Uh, but also uh, not crossing uh, an invisible red line into providing weapons that might uh, uh, I think recklessly risk the possibility of escalation into direct conflict between the United States and Russia so those those conditions are already being attached. The question is should there be other conditions too on this now um, when you're in a negotiation it's a very delicate kind of situation you have to amount of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. You can just imagine if the Russians were to discover that the United States were giving the Ukrainians some sort of ultimatum, you know, negotiate or else, we mm. won't support you. Um, that would give the Russians an enormous incentive not to make concessions mm. in the negotiation. Mm-hmm. In, in the belief that uh, the United States can essentially mm. do uh, a good part of Russia's negotiating for it. Um, by exerting Mm -hmm. that kind of pressure on the Ukrainians. So we have to be extremely careful about that. Uh, So I I would not advocate delivering some sort of ultimatum to the Ukrainians. You know, you must compromise. Here's what that compromise ought to be, Mm -hmm. or else we don't support you. Um, That said, uh, Ukraine's dependence on us gives us a a lot of implicit uh, leverage and influence over them. So if we were, you know, privately with the Ukrainians to say, "Hey, look, uh, you and we need to be steering this toward a situation where you are going to be uh, safe in the future, mm-hmm. uh, secure from repeat invasions uh, against uh, you know by the Russians." We want to help you do that. Part of that is going to mean finding a settlement here that does ensure your sovereignty and security Mm -hmm. let's talk about what that looks like and let's you know together think about how uh, we can work in partnership to steer things toward that kind of outcome um that's the kind of thing you know if done quietly subtly you know privately uh can be effective um and the ukrainians have already shown that they're willing to think about this early in the war they put a proposal on the table where they would declare Ukraine neutral Uh uh, with its security uh, assured by an international group of Mm -hmm. guarantors. Yeah. So they're they're willing to think I think creatively and flexibly about this sort of
1: thing. And and so it very well may be that those things that you talk about that uh you know w- w- would go on between the US and and Ukraine we don't even know about they may already be uh going on. They may have already uh mentioned that to Ukraine, "Hey, when you have the chance, we expect you to uh, find a diplomatic way out of this. How, how in general, uh, George Beebe, do you, do you think the uh, 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 Biden administration is approaching this right now? Are they doing the right thing, from what you can tell, from what we know publicly, about the way they are moving this forward?
2: Well, you know, I think you've made a good point that if you're going to be engaging in very sensitive private discussions, mm-hmm. that you might not get much of an indication of that publicly. So um, I think the real answer here is that we can't know Hmm. uh, what exactly might be going on Mm -hmm. behind the scenes there. What I can tell you is my impression here in Washington is that we're putting a lot more effort into arming the Ukrainians uh, and hoping that we can uh, arrest some of the momentum that the Russians have had on the battlefield Mm -hmm. over uh, the past few months and in so doing, enable the Ukrainians to negotiate from a more advantageous position. But I don't get the sense, uh, and I I, I admit I I don't have full transparency into this, but I don't get the sense right now that we're moving very seriously along a diplomatic track.
1: Mm. Uh, I've got uh, just a, a couple of minutes here, George Beebe. I want to try to fit in a, a few quick, po- well, I don't know how quick they are, but uh, some points. One, my understanding is that right now it is Russia that does not want to negotiate. In fact, Ukraine had been hoping for, and, and even, as you mentioned, uh, had been participating in peace talks early on in the war. Uh, is that the case, or is it now that both sides are no longer interested? Uh, where are we there?
2: Well, um hard to say. Uh, the, the standard retort to the argument that we need to be finding a negotiated settlement is that we don't have an interlocutor, that the Russians aren't interested in talking. Mm-hmm. They just want to win. I don't actually think that's true. Uh, the Russians say, if you look at what their officials are saying, that, that, that they do want to talk. In fact, uh, they complain that the Ukrainians took that earlier proposal from March that I talked about, about mm-hmm. neutrality, off the table. And that they wanted to to pursue that kind of option. So they're pointing figures at the Ukrainians, saying that the Ukrainians are the ones that have ceased these negotiations that had been going on Mm -hmm. uh, much earlier in the war. Um, The other thing is, you know, the Russians uh, have a peculiar way of communicating. There's an awful lot of threat and bluster to what they have to say about things, Mm -hmm. and that is actually fairly. uh, typical Russian behavior. But, you know, the uh, uh, Putin recently said, hey, you know, uh, the longer this war goes on, the tougher our conditions are going to be in a settlement. So, you know, watch out. Uh, a lot of Americans look at that and say, aha, this is threatening language, uh, which it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but buried underneath those threats is an implicit message here that you know there may be a settlement that they have in mind. You don't say, hey, our terms for a settlement are going to get worse mm. over time if, you know, you're not actually willing to talk about right. what the terms of the settlement might be.
1: If you're actually asking, it's trying to say, hey, now's a good time to find that settlement, which which sort of, you know, the 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 threat of this turning nuclear is obviously very scary, but it seems to me that the the, the very real fear of that is actually used by russia and its propagandists knowingly or otherwise to sort of scare public opinion into conceding this whole mess to russia it sounds like you're suggesting that actually is a sort of a negotiating tactic hey now would be a really good time to try to find a solution here
2: well you recall ronald reagan used to talk about you know always negotiating from the position of strength Uh uh-huh um, the Russians very much believe in that, uh-huh. in their approach to negotiations. They don't negotiate by saying, you know, hey, let's make a deal, what do you think? You know, are you willing to compromise? Uh-huh. Um, their their approach is, is very much, you know, we're, we're going to negotiate from a position of strength here and in, in the belief that that will uh, lead to the best uh, possible terms from their point of view. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right that the Russians are using the threat of nuclear war here as uh, leverage in trying to find an advantageous outcome here. Um, that, you know, there, there is a war going on on the battlefield. There's also a war going on in the information sphere where both sides are trying to shape perceptions and, and gain advantage mm-hmm. there in the battle for opinion. Um, That doesn't mean, however, that the threat that this might escalate is entirely conjured out of thin air. Mm -hmm. Um, We are, in fact, in a situation where the United States is in a proxy war with the world's largest nuclear power over an issue that that the Russians believe is central to their national security. Um, that's the kind of situation in which escalation is inherently a, part, a danger yep. of this. doesn't mean that it's likely, but it also means that we can't treat this in a frivolous manner. It's a real threat.
1: It's a dangerous game indeed. Uh, finally, and speaking of dangerous games, uh, George, this is an un- unfairly huge question uh, to give you for the few seconds that we have left. but. Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan uh, late on Tuesday after reportedly being dissuaded from that trip by President Biden and the Pentagon for fears of exacerbating tensions between China and the U.S., uh, as it's the highest level visit to Taiwan since then Republican House Speaker Newt Gingrich visited back in 1997, I believe. Uh, I have noticed Russian media has been a- absolutely obsessed with the well with the possibility of this visit now for for several days and they frequently argue that the us is meddling in China's sovereign affairs uh, in what seems to me to be a way to distract from or uh, counter what Russia themselves are doing in Ukraine as a Russian expert and as Director of Grand Strategy at Quincy Institute. How does the uh, the Pelosi visit to Taiwan affect Russia, and is it an ill-considered move amid these uh, increasingly tense relations between China and the US?
2: Well, um, from the Russian point of view, um, their uh, relationship with the West is over. Um, they no longer have any realistic possibility of good relations with Europe and the United States, you know, anytime soon. So this war in Ukraine has made them almost completely dependent on China. Um, And, you know, from Russia's point of view, the Pelosi visit is a godsend, because, you know, up to this point, the United States has been attempting to, through, you know, persuasion and coercion, uh, to prevent the Chinese from really providing serious backing to Russia uh, in the war in Ukraine. And the Chinese have been quite ambivalent about this, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, they uh, have have been hesitant mm-hmm. to side openly with the Russians in this. Um, and what the, the Pelosi visit essentially is doing is, uh, you know, exacerbating tensions between the United States and China in a way that will only encourage the Chinese to side more overtly with the Russians. And, you know, the the ultimate problem from our point of view would be if the Chinese provide the Russians with real military assistance in all of this. That, mm-hmm. that could have a quite decisive effect on prospects on the battlefield. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Russians are essentially thanking Nancy Pelosi, mm. for you know, exacerbating the U.S.-Chinese relationship in a way that could help uh, Russia form a much closer, uh, more cooperative partnership with China.
1: Before I let you go, George Bebe, uh, my producer Desi Doyen slides me a question here, uh, wondering if uh, you know if if, if Russia. Ever actually had a legitimate concern about Ukraine? Had they join if they had joined NATO? Was there ever actually a real threat to Russian sovereignty uh, on on its borders, uh, or is everything we're looking at now really based on something much larger, you know, geopolitically, rather than a real threat that they actually felt from Ukraine?
2: Well, um, you're asking me to uh, compare. Russia's perceptions with reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in almost all cases, um, perceptions are what matter in motivating behavior. Mm-hmm. And there is usually a gap between perception and truth. All nations suffer from that gap to one degree or another. Um, the Russians believed, and it's not entirely without justification, that the presence of the world's most powerful military alliance and most powerful military on Russia's borders posed an unacceptable military threat to Russia. Um, There's no question that they believe that, and there's no question that they're not alone in the world uh, in countries that uh, react very negatively to those kinds of prospects. You know, the United States, obviously, has had the Monroe Doctrine for several centuries, which essentially said, you know, non-hemispheric powers trying to establish, you know, uh, military relationships in our hemisphere mm-hmm. are an unacceptable threat to the United States. So mm-hmm. we're, we're, you know, Russia's not unique in this. Um, but, you know, the Russians are also uh, probably more sensitive to the threats of, of foreign invasion than other countries, in part because they have a long history of invasions, Um you know, they they don't have two oceans protecting them from potential invasor, invaders mm-hmm. like we do mm-hmm. um and so you know their sensitivities are more acute than some other countries as a result
1: whether it's a real threat or not doesn't matter if they feel it's a real threat that is apparently well, they're, what they're,
2: matters if they feel yeah. it they're going to act on yeah. it and i think that's what we're seeing
1: George Beebe's book is The Russia Trap How Our Shadow War With Russia Could Spiral Into Nuclear Catastrophe. He's the Director of Grand Strategy at the Quincy Institute, a former intelligence Analyst, diplomat, and Policy Advisor uh, You can find his work, of course, at Quincy Institute uh, Actually, it's quincyinst.org Quincyinst.org And you can find them On the Twitters at Quincyinst. George Beebe, really appreciates. Uh, your your time today. Appreciate talking to you. Hope to do so again in the future, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, let's take a quick break. There is just there has been so much going on in this country it's, that it's like uh, it, having been able to talk about the war. I know, I
0: know, I know, and I and I really appreciate what he's uh, what what George has to say here because I uh, find it a very nuanced and complex discussion. So I appreciate that perspective. It
1: is nuanced. It is complex, and you've got people on all so all sides, sort of. I'm sorry, talking out of their rear end uh, about what needs to happen, what should happen, who's to blame, everything else. Uh, it's good to try, at least, to make some sense of it when we have the rare opportunity. All right. We will take a quick break and we will come back with, oh, look, it's Desi Doyen Yay. and the Green News Report. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. And thanks. Well, from the uh, brutal war on Ukraine to our ongoing brutal climate emergency summer at this point, Uh, uh, just stuff going on everywhere, floods, heat, everything else. Yes. Uh, So quickly is it happening that we've already got uh, a number of updates from today's Green News Report that we will get to after we play it for you, our latest Green News Report. It's going to get worse, and I think that we will be updating it maybe even for weeks to, to come.
0: Death toll rises in Kentucky floods as extreme heat and fires sear the west. Good times for big oil. Plus...
1: This is a major piece of legislation that they say would pay down the national debt, cut health care costs, fight climate change, and battle inflation.
0: Manchin-Schumer compromise bill could be a game changer for climate.
1: All of those game changers... And more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman.
0: And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand
1: by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Things can get much hotter, according to climate activist Al Gore. Gore went on the Sunday shows this weekend warning that our atmosphere could get a lot worse. Thanks, Al. Where were you 20 years ago when we could have done something about... I'm sorry, he what? (laughs) This is your... Green News. Well, maybe if more people had voted for him than the other guy,
0: he would have had a chance to be... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, what?
1: This is your Green News Report. Say hi to Tipper, what? Okay, Desi Doyle, we can't even keep up anymore. One disaster after another from coast to coast across the U.S.
0: Yes, sadly, in Kentucky, as we go to air, at least 37 people are now confirmed dead after unprecedented rains late last week triggered historic flash floods that swept homes off their foundations and destroyed bridges, roads, and communications. More heat and rain are in the forecast. Kentucky's Democratic Governor Andy Beshear warned on CNN that the death toll is likely to rise in the hardest-hit areas and that recovery will take years.
1: We're going to be there for you, not just today and tomorrow. We're going to be there for you next year.
0: In Oregon, at least 10 deaths have been linked to the persistent, record-breaking heat wave searing the Pacific Northwest. In Northern California, a state of emergency after the McKinney Fire in just hours became the largest fire in the state so far this year and killed at least two people. In Montana, the Elmo wildfire rapidly tripled in size to more than 11 square miles. All of these fires driven by heat, high winds, and extreme dryness plaguing the West. Mm. But as the climate emergency wreaks havoc across the United States, times are pretty good for big oil. They're raking in record profits. That's nice. Oil giants ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Shell announced they profited a combined $46 billion over just three months in the second quarter in part due to high gas prices on consumers.
1: So those were the months that they were raising the gas prices On all of us.
0: Yes. On Capitol Hill, Democratic leaders are pushing for the Senate to quickly pass historic new legislation on climate, energy and more in the Inflation Reduction Act, a deal struck between Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. If the bill passes, it would mark the largest climate investment ever in U.S. history, nearly $370 billion in new funding for emissions reduction and clean energy. The bill uses two main levers, private industry and households. For industry, the bill expands incentives to accelerate renewable energy, domestic green hydrogen, domestic clean tech manufacturing, advanced nuclear, carbon capture and removal, and decarbonizing agriculture and emissions-intensive chemicals, steel and cement industries. For households, the bill includes 10 years of subsidies for American families to cut energy costs, making it cheaper to electrify their homes and boost energy efficiency and weatherization, along with rebates for both new and used electric vehicles. Independent analyses calculate it will cut U.S. emissions roughly 40 percent by 2030. But there's a catch. To get Mansions' vote, the bill also shackles renewable energy development on public lands to the expansion of fossil fuel development on public lands and requires streamlining permitting of new energy infrastructure, but that benefits both fossil and renewable. It also increases royalties for the fossil fuel industry and requires a steep new fee, the first ever for leaks of climate warming methane. Some environmental groups have criticized those compromises, but climate policy expert Dr. Leah Stokes of UC Santa Barbara on MSNBC called it a game changer. We can't miss the forest for the trees here because literally the forest will burn down if we do. So it's not ideal, it's not perfect, but what we're talking about here is a really small emissions penalty and payment Compared to huge pollution cuts
1: on the other and side of the ledge. Overall, sounds great. Can't wait for Kirsten Cinema to kill it.
0: Exactly. The bill must also pass the House and make it through Senate parliamentary procedures and survive Republicans throwing everything at it. And obstructionist Democratic Senator Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, whose vote is crucial for passage, has not said whether she supports the bill.
1: I'm sure it will all be fine. Oh! what could possibly go wrong for much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today. Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Wait and see,
0: it's be again.
1: You could use a game changer.
0: Indeed, we could. Right around now. As you had mentioned, there are sadly some updates to many of those top stories that we had of the extreme weather disasters hitting across the United States in California from the McKinney Fire in Northern California. Now two more people have been found dead, bringing the total to four. And in Oregon, in that incredibly record heat wave, uh, 14 deaths said to be related to the heat wave there up from 10, which we reported just earlier today.
1: Yeah, it's all moving quickly everywhere, and we also didn't have time to mention uh, in in the GNR today, but the northeast is about to get slammed by heat again over the next day or so, all the way up into New England. It will reportedly be a short-lived heat wave, uh, shorter at least than the one that really slammed the region in July, but it'll be rough nonetheless for a day or two there, so please stay cool, stay hydrated. Stay safe uh, up there and, frankly, just about everywhere else this uh, brutal summer. Uh, A game changer for climate at this point cannot come soon enough. We will see if... Still no word from Kirsten Cinema. Still no
0: word as far as I've heard.
1: Uh, does that make you nervous? It
0: does. It definitely does. Because, listen, what we're seeing this summer is that our infrastructure not only isn't ready for the climate change to come, it is not ready for climate change today. That
1: is here already. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Uh, we need to get started. Uh, by the way, we got to get out. While, while the uh, GNR was playing, there's some breaking news from the New York Times. Officials involved in Donald Trump's plan to falsely claim that he had won Arizona, told lawyers they feared their actions could be seen as treason. Oh, oh, oh. Well, that could leave a mark. Anyway, speaking of Donald Trump and treason and Arizona, we will have full, uh, well, as full as possible a primary election results on our next broadcast. Out of Ohio, Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington State. Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, George Beebe of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. There is no paywall. We try to keep it open to everyone. That is, of course, only possible thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. To help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Bradblog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. It's gonna be-